Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. As I say in this episode, it was two years ago that I launched the podcast. Initially, it was in response to the 2020 riots to give law enforcement a platform to discuss the impact of what you were going through, the extreme verbal, physical, and emotional attacks you undeservedly suffered on a daily basis, and the toll of calls for defunding and abolishing the police. At the same time, my goal was to showcase the profession as it really is, not as it was being portrayed. Since then, I have and continue to interview law enforcement from around the country. My goal, as it was when I started working with law enforcement 12 years ago, is to tell the real stories of police work, the ones that don't make the news. It is also my way of telling law enforcement through dark days and good that there are civilians like myself who support you and who understand just how much you give of yourselves to do this job. Thank you for being a police officer. To those of you who are a law enforcement family member and loved one, thank you for sharing your police officer with the rest of us and for the commitment and sacrifice you make. If you are a civilian like me, thank you for tuning in. Our support and willingness to see the job for what it is, to see the people who wear the badge for who they are, is critical to the ability of law enforcement to succeed. My intention is to promote understanding through conversation and dialogue to promote discourse, not discord. Thank you for tuning in, whether it's for the first time or whether you have been here from the start. Now let's get to the interview. Today I am welcoming retired Seattle Police Sergeant Drew Hancock. Drew was with the Seattle Police Department for 28 years. In his time with the department, Drew worked foot patrol and mountain bikes. He also was an undercover detective in vice and narcotics. He then went on to work as a supervisor for 10 years with SWAT and helped oversee the unit's response to the 2020 riots. Drew, welcome. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We uh, actually know each other. I met you about 12 years ago. It's kind of poetic that you are joining me now for the podcast because it was two years ago, almost to the day, well, around this time that I started the podcast. And I started it with a sergeant from the Seattle Police Department. And it was right around the time that Chief Carmen Best, the first black female chief, resigned. I know a little bit about your background because we've met before. I know that you, when you retired, you were in SWAT, and we'll talk about that. I know that you did vice and narcotics undercover. I know you did bikes. But let's start at the beginning. You joined in 1993? Yep, correct. And what uh, what drew you to law enforcement? Oh, let's see. My my father was an accountant, still is an accountant. And then watching him go to work and seeing him sit behind a desk every day just didn't really appeal to me. And then a couple uncles that were in law enforcement, one federal, one more local. And the stories they had and then coming home with just a plethora of stories from their experiences sounded much more interesting of a, of a career path than, than crunching numbers. So that's what kind of initially drew me to to law enforcement. And you had been in the military. Correct, correct. Right high school, went in the military. Uh, six years, did active and reserve. So yeah, and, and kind of knew what I wanted to do. So was actually a military police officer in oh. the Army for, for six years. Okay. Well, that's one thing I didn't know. Was law enforcement what you thought it would be? I guess since you had some background with relatives, you maybe had a better understanding. Yeah, I think you'd, I think you'd, nobody knows. You know, you think you have a 
from, from what everyone else's experience that aren't police officers, you watch whatever you watch on TV, you think it's going to be somewhat similar. And there are some things that are certainly like that, but for a vast majority, it's not. <laughs> um, so so I, I, I don't think I knew, but I was so new and having so much fun out running around that uh, you know, I didn't mind you know, being a patrol and doing all, the, all that crazy stuff, the fun stuff early on in, in my career. And then I saw in your bio you were on foot patrol, which is not something I knew. Yeah, I mean, it was just kind of one of those things that the precinct level, you know, there's five precincts in Seattle, and that was the North Precinct, which encompasses, you know, the University of Washington. And there's a strip there called the Ave University Way, mm-hmm. um, this commercial area right next to the university. So it's, it's very, very active. So yeah, I was, I don't know, just pushed there. I can't remember why. <laughs> just to walk the foot beat, stuck with an old, an old salty veteran and uh, kind of just show me the ropes or whatnot. So we walked the foot beat on the app for, for a while. It was, it was fun. It was cool because you're just out amongst the public. Yeah. So it was, it was good. So I know from talking with you before, there was a pretty dramatic incident while you were on patrol. If you want to tell me, uh, well, tell my audience about that incident. Sure. Sure. It was King County courthouse. The suspect's name was Timothy Blackwell. And I actually wasn't on patrol at that time. I think I was working nights or something or my day off. But I was going actually going to the courthouse to testify for a case, um, some arrest that I had made. And got, you know, got into one of the main doors and was going up. You know, The elevators take a long time as people use them. So I take the stairs. I was only going up like one floor. And so I went into the stairwell, you know, one of those heavy metal doors, fire doors like closed behind me. And I remember like going halfway up the first flight of stairs and hearing you know, I, I, I misplaced it as, as hammering. You know, people are always, they're always working on the old courthouse. So I thought it was just someone hammering. Um, so I totally didn't register what I was hearing in my brain. But I'm about halfway up this first flight of stairs, dismissed that, just continuing up the stairs. And then that's when someone who had seen me in uniform kind of came through the door behind me and yelled, you know, officer, officer, someone's firing a gun in the hallway. And so realizing then what I was hearing, kind of came back down out the door through there's a, there's a big central area of elevators in the courthouse and ran through, you know, in the direction the guy was pointing through this, you know, a central area of elevators and to this far hallway. And I remember still seeing, you can still see this gun smoke in the air at that point. Uh, it was, it was that, that recent that it just occurred. It was dead silent at that point. So the people were just yelling at people to get back and the elevators were coming out. And I remember, you know, drawing my gun, peeking around the corner, another King County, it was. They, I think it was even a deputy. They're more. They were more marshals. Kind of work in the courtrooms. Were coming out also, um, guns drawn. So you know, we're looking down the, this hallway. That's when you see this guy Timothy Blackwell still standing in the hall with you know holding the gun in his hand, and you see three women. You know, one was on the floor and two were slumped over on a, on a bench outside a courtroom, and uh, you know, I'm, I remember still feeling finger on my trigger yelling at him to put the gun down, starting to put pressure on the trigger. And the guy like looks our direction, just as calmly as can be, just sets the gun down on the bench, raises his hand and then gets down to the floor, you know, on his own. Um, and what had happened was he was going through a real messy divorce with a mail order bride that he had who had gotten pregnant by another man. And so right outside their courtroom where their divorce hearing was going on, he just set his briefcase down on a bench, opened up his briefcase, pulled out a nine millimeter and walked up to him and just, shot them all three, you know, point blank range, uh, right, right there on the bench. All three being his, uh, her, her, yeah, her and two of her friends that were kind of there for support. And they all died. All died. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he, yeah, shot her, you know, specifically in the abdomen for, for her unborn child kind of thing. So, yeah, so it was pretty, Oh my God. pretty bad. Yeah. It's bad. Well, I know you've seen a lot of things in your career, but that had to have been 
pretty rough. Certainly, as I can recall, it was kind of the first big one <laughs> that I saw that, that uh, it was, you know, it was pretty traumatic, you know, certainly at the time, um, you know, just having, getting him in custody and then going and trying to treat these women where you're just, you know, I mean, they were still, two of them I remember were still, you know, I wouldn't say conscious, semi-conscious, but trying to do whatever you could because as every officer knows, you know, it's forever before the fire department gets there because no one really outside of what that little scene is knows what's going on. Mm. So the response time could only be a matter of minutes, but it seems like forever as you're trying to, you know, keep people from bleeding out with your hands. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it was, it was tough certainly early on, but definitely, a you know, kind of a doctor into to big city policing. So, yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, it's elementary now, but it was after that they, they started doing yeah, the screening, some kind of screening process, metal detectors and, you know, checking bags and all that type of stuff. So, yeah, none of that was in place. It was just a open to the public location. But, you know, this is back in the early 90s, so active yeah. shooter wasn't much of a thing yet. And right. No one even really thought about that yet. Right. But, yeah, after the fact, you know, duh, what a right. good idea. <laughs> so. Oh. so then what, um, what attracted you to vice and narcotics? Being an, it was undercover detective work. Yep, yep, yeah. I, you know, I did my time patrol and rode, you know, rode bikes, did foot beat, you know, did the bikes. bikes oh, bikes were before. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I did oh. bikes. Like, uh, you know, I guess I went from foot beat, and as soon as the first opportunity presented itself to go to bikes, I went to bikes and rode those on the Ave and, you know, around the area of Green Lake, which is a, a big recreational area in the city. So it was, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. It was a lot of fun. But my, my ultimate goal I always wanted to be was, was getting to work undercover as I grew up in the 80s. And so I watched a lot of Miami Vice growing up. And, you know, Sonny Crockett was extremely cool. I had the cool clothes, had a great car, lived on a boat. So I'm like, yeah, that's definitely what I want to do. So, so that was my, my early ambition in law enforcement was to get to undercover. And for the longest time, narcotics just was not any openings, no one was leaving, there was no opportunity, but then the vice unit that works kind of in the same or the adjacent office to narcotics had opportunity in, in their undercover position. So I applied for that and, you know, got my detective shield to, to go up and work undercover. So that was prostitution, racketeering, gambling, everything, everything possibly weird stuff you can imagine goes on in Seattle, the underbelly of Seattle, the dark side. Got to do a lot of weird things I never expected, but also, you know, cut my teeth working undercover very quickly. So it was it was, it was an interesting experience. That was that was for a couple of years. Yeah. Did you have to look all grungy? And because you, I mean, people can't see you, but uh, you don't look like a drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I, yeah. Yeah. I definitely changed changed the look a bit. Um, you know, longer hair and the goatee, and you still see the holes are still in my ears where I had multiple piercings in both my ears. From trying to look, trying to look the part. So yeah, yeah, I went through my grungy phase for sure. <laughs> um, so I'm testing my knowledge. So vice is prostitution, gambling, basic. racketeering, okay. yeah, promoting oh, oh. prostitution, all kinds uh -huh. of yeah, all kinds of strange things like that. They that are <laughs> it can go in all kind of weird directions. Yeah, yeah. So any uh, there have to be stories from that. Any. I mean, you know, to me, like I talked to one former SPD, now San Diego detective, and he was undercover and he was done for the day going home, stopped at a 7-Eleven. And when he was leaving, some guy said to him, have a good night, officer. And he's like, 
how did you, <laughs> you know, he's completely, he's driving his personal vehicle. And I asked him, well, did you back into your parking space? Cause that's, you know, a sure sign that you're a cop. And he said, no. So how do you not get made? It, it certainly happened a few times. Um, luckily not in a, not in a real dynamic situation where, you know, things could have really gone sideways or one time that was a little bit sketchy, but mo- for the most part, yeah, you, I mean, you know, Aurora Avenue is a big, you know, big long avenue in, in Seattle, and that's where most back then, at least, most of prostitution took place. Street prostitution along along that avenue, and so yeah, it was it was a little bit of a challenge not to get recognized on a really base regular basis because um, you know, let's say you're you're targeting the same prostitutes over and over again, but sometimes you are, um, and they're misdemeanor charges, so they weren't staying in jail for very long, if at all. So it maybe became a challenge for some degree, but we, you know, there's other three other detectives that are working with me. We rotate out and come up with different, okay, yes, be creative. So, so yeah, definitely got made more than once uh, or, or done that exact same thing, like, okay, officer, whatever. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, it was fun. For me, it was a lot of fun. And it was just, it was a means to an end for me because I was trying to get the narcotics, which I did after a couple of years of, of doing that. So I was able to slide right over the net to the office next door and then got into into dope work for for a while. Okay, so that's a set right. Okay, so narc is it? See, I'm I'm mm-hmm. getting rusty in my unit. Yeah, the whole thing like Miami Vice, you know, is different. <laughs> Maybe they do it differently in Miami. I don't know, but yeah, Seattle Vice and Seattle Narcotics were two totally different things. So okay. I was I was already misled from early in my in my <laughs> under, undercover career. It was it was it wasn't hot girls and and uh, fancy sports cars. It was like crummy trucks and you know, street prostitutes. So yeah, it wasn't very, it wasn't very, uh, fancy by any means. <laughs> and so how was narcotics? It was good. I mean, it was, it was, it was fun. It was great, great group to work with. And we had a lot of fun. Again, you could do a lot of creativity, you know, however you could figure out a case or find informants or, you know, run with the case it was kind of wide open, uh, which was always, was always interesting because you could run something start to finish and to develop it as far as it could go, um, with, the bad guys you're working against, you know, you're working to get into, uh, to informants you're using. So there's a lot of, I guess, open-ended as what well, as, as far as how you, you ran your cases and whatnot. And everyone was there to support each other and help each other with surveillance and backup and whatnot. So it was a, it was, it was a great unit to work for. I had still a lot of great friends from that unit way back back then. Um, that we had we had a blast at the time. It was a lot of fun. And and when I was there. You know, we're still doing dope houses, and I bought $20 crack rocks, you know, more times than I would ever remember um, all over the city. So interesting experiences with that. But what really, I guess what I got more into and just was more more the look for was back then was the, the raves. Remember, the raves were really big, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. ecstasy, ecstasy was really big back then. So so I got into doing a lot of undercover stuff in the raves and then making contacts and then doing big ecstasy buys outside of the raves. And kind of ran with those cases quite a bit, so so it was interesting to to do that work up as well, and then and then later in my narcotics career, we got more into the federal cases where we do like a federal task force, and we get to big, you know, kind of get into the big money and the more extended organizations uh, as far as how far the feds could cast out the net and captures as many of of an organization as you could, and that's where you see you know DEA and some task force you know, serves 20 search warrants and arrests 50 people and we get hundreds of kilos of cocaine and tens of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's one of those kind of cases wrapping up, but those can go for months, if not years before that happens. So did a lot of federal task force 
stuff for a while there towards the end. But but certainly after seven years of that kind of lifestyle and you know being a little bit more intimate with drug addicts and drug dealers and <laughs> I had a stomach for any longer, I was I was ready for a change for sure for sure. And that's when you went to SWAT. Well, no, that's when I that's when I took the supervisor's the sergeant's test. So I took the sergeant's test um, while I was still in narcotics, and then made the list high enough up that I got promoted shortly thereafter, and then went back to patrol like everyone does. You kind of go back to patrol as a, as a sergeant straight away. It was good. It was definitely a good. I mean, it's a dramatic change, but it was a very good change. It was a very good change. That was kind of back when I went became a sergeant. That was like the best. You know, everyone still calls called it then kind of the best job in the department because you get to go out and kind of have all the fun, but you're more direct and the people do all the paperwork. Usually. So it, so it was, a, it was a great time. It was a great time. You're kind of in charge of your squad and, and uh, for the most part, you know, running things the way you want to run it on the street. So it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Well, I guess maybe that's why I got the chronology confused because I know you were a sergeant on the bike squad. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, I went to, went to, so I got promoted and went back to patrol. I think I only did like six months and you know, pushing a patrol car and a patrol squad and then an opening you know, it doesn't come around very often. So an opening came up for a bike sergeant downtown Seattle, and I jumped on it for sure. So that's what I love mountain biking, and and had a great I remember having a great time in the '90s riding a mountain bike around. So I definitely want to get back to that. Um, and so yeah, I, I was able to get that sergeant position for a bike squad. I, just about anyone I know that's ever been on bikes loved bikes. I think one of the things kind of like foot patrol is that you're out in it, right? You're not in a car, you can stop and talk to people, but you can also kind of, you know, come up on someone without lights and sirens and maybe get them before they see you coming. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Much, much more, much more, much more sneakers. Don't, you know, you you see a patrol car coming from, you know, a mile away and, and a, bike officers, especially since we kind of keep, we tone down the uniform. So it makes it a little bit harder to pick them up, but you just don't see them as easily or the bad guys don't see them or pick them up as easily. And back, you know, when I took over one of the bike squads, you know, it was a very, they were pushing for that and really wanted that more proactive policing. So we we're very, very, very mm. proactive. And the officers you brought in, you know, to ride bikes were proactive police officers. So it was chomping up the bit to go out and get bad guys and you're going out and, you know, and even back then, having you know possession of any any level of narcotics was still a criminal offense it's not in seattle now but crack pipe you had a crack pipe you know there was a residue in that crack pipe that was an arrestable offense back then so that was our main target was going out and doing the you know the drug dealers and the drug addicts and, and the whatnot the small level stuff that people see on the street and kind of keeping pressure on that it was fun i mean you're just you're essentially you know, spotting drug dealers and drug addicts, you know, uh, making deals and you're going out and re- trying to get, trying to arrest both of them and from a variant, very variance of ways, but it was a very fun, proactive time. What do you think about, you know, not being able to arrest for low level drugs at this point? I think, I think like anything in, you know, kind of society and certainly in law enforcement, there's a balance to that. I'm, I'm certainly a huge advocate for helping people, you know, get off of being addicted and, bettering their lives and getting back to, you know, society and back to taking care of themselves and just bettering their own lives. But I also feel that there's, you know, you can have all the programs in the world you want. And a lot of these folks that are addicted or mentally ill or pick your, you know, whatever are, are not going to do that, you know, unless they're forced to do that. They just will not because either they mentally cannot or for whatever reason, they're not able to do that because of that addiction or that mental illness. So they have to be, you know, somehow forced to do that or at least force it in a way. But, but either way, 
I don't feel as people living in a civilized society should have to essentially live with, you know, lawlessness, live with, you know, people doing things illegally. And because there are certain, you know, mental illness or addicted that you just have to deal with that and live with that because that's who these people are. I don't think that's not a civilized society. That's just kind of letting lawlessness run amok because of some ideology. I don't know, but I think there's a balance in there certainly to go both ways, but there has to be enforcement in a lot of big cities now is that enforcement's been taken away. And now, Oh, you know, and people are surprised that, Oh my gosh, there's more violent crime or, Oh my gosh, there's more things being stolen or, Oh my gosh, you know, there's more people getting hurt. Like, well, no kidding. Like, what did you think you take the police away and take, you know, the enforcement of laws away? Like, like, what did you think was going to happen that everyone was going to start behaving themselves? Like, no, you kind of get getting what you're getting. Right. Well, and I do know that you, what a big heart you have and that you said that you would talk to folks that you arrested and kind of ask them why, you know, what, how did they get in this spot? Correct. And the one girl that you helped. Yeah. As a sergeant, you know, once your people arrested someone, you would, you know, you would go in and screen the arrest and talk to the people, make sure they're okay. And, you know, and and if they were talkative in a talkative mood or, or, you know, seemed reasonable, um, you know, I'd talk to them, ask them, you know, kind of their history, how they got there, whatever else, you know, and they've all been read their rights. So I'm not trying to criminalize, criminalize them anymore, but just kind of get some background. And if there's some intervention you could do, then sure. And yeah, there was a few times that I actually had some people that asked for help and, you know, and I was able to guide them in the direction and put them in contact with the right resources. And, and the kind of one success story was a, was a black female that, you know, she was caught dealing drugs. My, my bike folks got her. And, you know, she was very upset and, 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 and her story was, she came from a family where her, her, she had no support, right? Her parents were addicts and dealers. And so she grew up in this environment and coming from where she came from, you could see how anyone could fall into that. So I, you know, offered her, you know, I didn't offer to get her out of jail, but I'm like, Hey, when you get out, you'll probably get out in a few days. Here's my cell number. You can call me. If you call me, you know, I will help you. I will put you in contact with someone else. And she literally did call in a couple of days when she got out. And I guided her to some folks that I knew in, in the, you know, in, the, in a couple services, and they got her housing, they got her job. She ended up working, getting her GED, got a better job, and kind of, and kind of made her way out. You know, and I felt like kind of all she needed really was like an opportunity, someone to help her just a little bit. And I wish it was that easy for a lot more folks, and it's not. But you know, and she's thanked me umpteen times, but it was, really I didn't do anything. You know, it all comes down to her. She made all the hard work. She made all the decisions. She made the change. I just kind of gave her an opportunity. So, so yeah, it was, I went called a big heart, just taking a few extra minutes to see if there's an opportunity and then kind of, kind of going with that. Well, and these are the things that police officers do. And these are the things that don't make the news. So every day, all day, all over. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> every cop knows that. Yeah. I also want to, I also know that bikes became integral in dealing with things like May Day protests. Did you work some of those protests while on bikes? Oh, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Several. And we'll get to the riots of 2020 mm-hmm. in comparison. How? Why were bikes so effective in dealing with the protests? Bikes, bikes are just, they're so much more, you know, maneuverable than a you know, someone on, on foot or even in a car or vans, or you want to pile a squad of folks in a van or, you know, put people out on foot. They're just, you can't get them, especially if a protest is mobile or a mar- you're doing a march or whatever else. You know, bikes are so much more mobile and, and, you know, you put people in a van that you can't get through traffic, 
you get stuck in traffic really easily, especially in, in downtown Seattle. So it's just hard to kind of manage resources uh, like that. Bikes just gives you an opportunity, you know, to get to places much quicker with a large group of people. And then those people are showing up with, you know, not just a bat in their hand, but they actually have a bike and you can use a bike and kind of make, you know, with tires of tires of tires, make like a fencing. So you can almost create a fence. So if a march is coming in one direction and a commander wants to send it down another street where you can literally block off from building to building, you know, with a squad of bikes you can just hold a line, you know, and, and be there in front of the march or whatever else or respond to, you know, whatever happens happening in, in the dynamics of a protest or a march. Bikes just have a quicker, easier response time to it with, you know, a barrier with them uh, to utilize. So it became a very useful tool. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if Seattle pioneered it, but I think we certainly practice it to use it most effectively because we had so much practice with it from May Days and all the other protests over the years that, that we got the repetitions and could refine it. So it became a very useful tool that, that they utilize to this day. And, and Did you go then from bikes to SWAT? Correct. Okay. Yep. So that was right around the time I met you. You were new in SWAT. And so in preparing for this interview, I realized I really know nothing about SWAT. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, why is that? And I thought, well, first of all, what I would know would, become, would be from TV. I also think team guys don't do interviews, right? You're not supposed to. Oh, hopefully not. Yeah, right? Not supposed to. It's like Fight Club, right? <laughs> <laughs> don't talk about Fight Club. So, what what drew you to SWAT? Yeah, I, I don't know. I was I don't know. I was drawn. I don't know. I was drawn. I remember being drawn to it. I remember being. You know, I had a. Was, we call him a friend. I mean, he's certainly a friend now, but, but acquaintance, a guy I knew that was a, was a SWAT commander. He used to be a, an operator, an officer in SWAT, you know, way back in the day when it kind of first started, but he became the SWAT commander and he reached out to me, you know, I was happily being a bike sergeant. He reached out to me, you know, Hey, I want you to apply for this position. I think you'd be good at it. It's a SWAT sergeant. Well, I'm like, I don't know. I was actually starting a business on the side. So I, I kind of hesitated uh, because that business is getting up and running. They didn't really have time to go learn a new position. I was happy with my schedule. So I kind of put him off and, and, I, and he said, well, how much more time do you need? And I said, oh, give me like six months, I guess. And so almost to the day, he called me back in six months. And then I knew I couldn't push him off anymore. And, you know, I had been on bikes for several years then at that point. So I was ready. You know, and that's the beauty of living, working in a larger police department. You have kind of opportunities to go do different things. And so when I knew from narcotics where I'd probably been there a few years too long, that I didn't want to get burned out in one place and not be able to move. So anyway, I Took him up on the opportunity and and went uh, to the team um, straight from bikes. Yeah, and, and kind of like the same thing. I knew, you know, I've known, knew several of the SWAT guys and certainly worked with them, you know, when I was in narcotics, but it was to the extent of, you know, bad guys in there, you guys go get him. And then they do their thing, their SWAT thing when we got him. So there wasn't a whole lot of, I don't know what they did on a daily basis. So I didn't really know what they were doing either. So yeah, so I jumped, you know, jumped right in. And, and the thing about, being a SWAT sergeant is, you know, when you're a SWAT operator or a SWAT officer, you come on and you're kind of, you're definitely the, the junior guy doesn't really like to do much. Your, your job is to learn the job, you know, and that can take a year, two years before you start getting plugged in any kind of critical role. So it's definitely a long workup. But as a SWAT sergeant, you know, you're almost in charge of things in a very short or, you know, very short period of time. So, so it can be very challenging. And for other reasons, it's very challenging. So as I learned when I got there, after after not too very long, that there's a reason there's not a lot of people applying for the SWAT sergeant. That's why he reached out to me. So it wasn't a long list of people that wanted the job. So because 
the sergeant's an interesting position because one, you're, you know, you're in charge of a squad, and oftentimes you're, you know, you're put in charge of missions, and so you're the, you know, as a field sergeant, so you're not at the command post; you're actually in the field with, with the officers and the operators. Um, but you're in the field, and so you're held. So you, at any point since you're in the field, could go from a supervisory or, you know, a lead, team leader position into an operator position. So you're held by the same standard as far as the officers go, and that means your physical fitness. Your, you know, all your shooting, everything. Mm. You're at the same level as an operator, but you also, you know, have to be the guy, person in charge. And and there's, you know, guys are on the SWAT team there for 20 years. So when you show up there, you've been there for a month or two. You don't know anything about what SWAT does. And these 20 year guys, you know, have been doing it, you know, with their eyes closed for forever. <laughs> so there's a very and they, and they know it too. So there's a very uh, interesting, you know, dynamic between supervisors and the SWAT team, and eventually. You learn the job, and then you can call BS on the BS, but you don't know <laughs> you don't know what they're feeding you or whatever else. And, and SWAT is certainly its own dynamic animal of of personalities. You know, for us, it was twenty eight people on the team. So when you get twenty eight Type A personalities kind of in the same room, that everyone thinks they can do it better or more efficiently, and are often not afraid to voice their opinion. Well, it can it can get it can get really interesting really quickly for a supervisor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what were what were some of the calls or what are the types of calls? I know generally, generally what SWAT does, but how would you explain it to an interested civilian like myself? <laughs> who? Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a extremely diversified job. I would say it's like people you know think it's all the high risk search warrants and you know I don't know what civilians would think it is, but mostly like search warrants and what are the baddest of the bad, which you certainly do. But there's everything in between. So it's a very, you know, you were, we're heavily utilized by our department, even by local federal agencies, uh, heavily utilized team. Um, so it varies. It very much varies. And it's, it can be um, uh, modulated, you know, if a detective just wants to go up and look, you know, knock on a door and talk to someone, but they want a little backup, but you need to send two SWAT officers up there with them just as backup to where, you know, the extent that I can have the entire team on one mission uh, on a regular basis and then calling out two extra SWAT teams, you know, for backup or other, others, you know, uh, things that could happen. So contingency plans, you know, can go huge with helicopters, all kinds of stuff. So it runs everything in between two officers to, you know, a hundred based on what mm. the circumstance is. But it's, it's mostly foremost is just, it's a support unit. It's a support unit for, Patrol officers, a support unit for detective units. It's just a big support unit that is utilized in all types of different capacities. And for us, it's a very, it's a very busy team and still is. It's probably even gotten more so in the last five years to where, you know, we're running 200, average about 200 missions a year uh, on average, I would say right around there. And that was the big difference between kind of patrol and SWAT is, you know, SWAT's very mission oriented. You're not really... You know, you're not practically patrolling. You're not going out looking for things. You know, you're not doing 911 calls, um, but certainly you do to, you know, to more dynamic or dangerous, you know, violent events. You are responding to 911 calls with patrol for different things, but it's more mission-based, right? So it's more military and mission-based. And so, you know, we have a mission, there's a workup plan up to it, that kind of thing. So it's much more mission, military-based special operations versus, you know, what a police, what people would really see more like a police response would be. But it's kind of different in the military because you're operating on the same rules as civilian law enforcement, but you know you're trying to do it on a military mission type capacity. 
Um, first of all, you don't test to get on SWAT, right? You just apply, is what you just well, said. Do you SWAT test? O- the operator, the SWAT operators do. Okay. <laughs> they, 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 they change. It's all, it, all, it all changes. You know, the, the, the SWAT commander kind of makes the rules, you know, and mm. that's one, not, one notch above me. There was, there was four field sergeants, usually three, three or four field sergeants on the team, and then one SWAT commander. So the SWAT commander, you know, could decide, how, you know, and it's mostly they're consistent with it. But, but yeah, when I came on, it was an interview process as far as just with the SWAT commander. And if he wanted you, they would, they would, he or she wanted you, they would just hand select you. Uh, but now there's a little bit of a test for the sergeant. You know, there's been some. Now there's now there's two people wanting a job instead of just one. Seems like there's not very many. It's that a long list that want the job. Um, but yeah, for the SWAT operators, there's a there's a we have a testing day, and it's usually once a year, once every two years, depending on on the needs. And yeah, that's very very competitive, very competitive physically, mm-hmm. you know, mentally, situation based, and then certainly uh, uh, your marksmanship is, is a big part of that too. So yeah, it's a very it's a whole day, and it's pretty. It's pretty stressful. It's good. It's good. And there's a long waiting period after that where they kind of test you out further. So it's a, it's a long process. Yeah. So let's talk about some of these like high risk search and arrest warrants, barricaded subject, hostage rescues, active shooters, crowd control, terrorist threats. <laughs> so, you know, I guess some portion of it I think you told me uh, in our pre-interview, you're sometimes you are creating a plan, right, to go serve a warrant. Well, yeah, ideally, if you're serving a warrant, you're definitely creating a good plan. Well, so I never, I didn't realize, like, why is serving a warrant so dangerous? Like, it seems well, like officers well, it, get killed all the time doing this. Certainly not, not all the time. No, I mean, you definitely hear that occasionally, but what you don't hear about is the tens of thousands of other warrants that got served that no one got killed officers or whatnot. <laughs> so your percentage is extremely small. And, and, you know, a lot of search warrant service are going after, you know, very bad people, right? A lot of, a lot of violent offenders, murderers, assault suspects, gangsters, whatever. Uh, they're usually violent people. The, the thing about warrants that I think a lot of people don't realize is, you know, at least in the SWAT, for me in the SWAT world, it's one of the, I wouldn't say safer, I'd say it's one of the safer things to do as far as high risk things go in the sense that you, you have time on your side, right? So, or a lot of times you have time on your side to where you can prep for it. You can go out and scout it. You can scout it from different levels. You can pull plans up, you know, from the, from the, you know, county records on locations. You can do, you know, Google Earth now is amazing. I mean, you can just do all these, you know, incredible scout up for some, like some location. Then you can, place your pieces of where you want them, prep that out. You have your, you know, your containment, go out and scout this so they know how to get there in the, in the middle of the night. You know, there's all kind mm. of prep up that can go into a service. And then the big thing is, is, is you get to not just have the plan, but you get to decide, you know, when it happens. And that's a big part of it is you're, you know, you're, you're putting everything in your court to service, right? You're bringing, you know, all this equipment, all this gear, all this firepower, all this manpower, this, you know, tactics that have been practiced, all the, prep and planning goes, goes, that goes up into it. So you bring a lot of things in your favor, you know, uh, to serve this warrant and you get to choose the time most of the time, but there's always that. And we always say that, you know, the bad guy has a say in it. And so <laughs> you can have everything set up, but that's where things can go sideways. You don't know. And you can have all your plans set up. But once you, that door opens up or it's, it's on, you know, the bad guy has a say and, and that's when things just, you know, happen. Um, and certainly can go bad. And that's where people do get officers do get killed in entry. And we do this thing in SWAT training and certainly a lot on our testing day and they're called hood drills. And 
essentially you will set up a small scenario. It's usually a very short scenario. Put a you know pillowcase over someone's head, and then you'll set the scenario, pull pillowcase off, and they just have to deal with what's in front of them. It's just making your mind kind of adjust very quickly and assess what's in front of you very quickly and how to react. And so when a door comes open on a search warrant, it's very much like that. You have everything's set up and what to go, but it's pretty much a hood drill because once you go in that front door, then you know then you don't know. But that's where you fall back on your tactics, your training, everyone working together as a team, and everything you have in place. When you're doing flashbangs at the front door, flashbangs on the back door, PAs, lights, you know, dogs, shouting, whatever you've got, just to kind of really disrupt, we call it the OODA loop uh, for the bad guys, and just got so much sensory overload that they can't react. And, and I've seen this time and time again where the super baddest of the bad was never going to go back to jail and was going to shoot out with the police with guns under their pillow in their bed, and they never went for them just because it went so overloaded so quickly uh, that they weren't able to react. And so that's where I say it's one of the safer things to do because you have so many things you've put in your favor, but certainly always have the potential uh, to go sideways, and, and some have, but percentage-wise, far, far less than, let's say, a vehicle takedown. I've seen many vehicle takedowns go sideways because a lot of those times, you don't get to pick the location. You don't get to pick the time when it goes down. So then you're kind of reacting and adjusting on the fly. And that leaves much more much more uh, room for error. What is the vehicle takedown? Oh, that's where, you know, for some reason you can't pin a bad guy down or whatever circumstance is going on with the detectives or, or whatnot. Can't pin the bad guy down to a certain location or they want to catch them doing this or doing that. Um, so then you've got to take them down while they're in a vehicle, you know, ideally, mm-hmm. predominantly. And most always is it's when they're stopped somewhere, but you know, I've seen them stopped at a stoplight and it take down. So you kind of just swarm in, block the box, the car in and, and take them down, you know, in their vehicle, but you're still, you're still trying to arrest someone that's sitting behind the wheel of a car or, you know, or a bigger vehicle, which is dangerous in and of itself. It's a weapon. <laughs> yeah. And it could be a weapon involved or, you know, just the vehicle is a weapon itself. Exactly. Right. Um, and, and it's, you know, a lot of times you're not able to, pick that where that location is. So you're deciding as things are unfolding, you're deciding where it's going to take place. And then the timing is not good because they're usually middle of the day or even in the evening time. But then you've got civilians in the area, civilians driving by, driving into your takedown, you know, bad, bad backdrop of, of people if you have to shoot. So it's very much, much more of a, of a dangerous tactic uh, than I would say you're, you're at, you know, run of the mill search warrant kind of thing, or even your run of the mill barricade because barricade, you know, similar to the search warrant is you're usually, you know, obviously circumstantial, but usually you're able to just contain a situation and then time becomes on your side and you just get all your pieces in place, go through all your tactics, you know, bring all your tools and everything to bear to, to utilize. So you're kind of really slowing things down to make it a more winnable situation, whereas a vehicle takedown is, is much more by the seat of your pants kind of thing. And so when you talk about barricaded person, it can be someone like a dangerous criminal that has barricaded themselves and you need to either get them to come out <laughs> right or you need to go in and get them or you do you you do not go in and get them the goal is to get them to come out oh yeah I, ideally ideally it's always safer to get them to come out than than for anyone to go in uh for sure and that's kind of the last thing when when you're down your list of tactics of what to do the last thing you want to do is start putting people inside so yeah i mean it runs everything from you know crazy mental person in the house you know that is destroying their house or whatever, or destroying their friend's house or destroying some house they broke into, you know, just refusing to come out 
or, you know, someone hold up with a rifle, you know, in a basement kind of thing. So, it, mm. I mean, absolutely, absolutely everything. I've, I've seen a, a, quite the plethora of barricade situations for sure. Huh. And then it's worse, even worse when it's a barricaded person with a hostage. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you know, outside of a, of a live active shooter event, that's certainly the, uh, the, the hardest tactic and certainly the most, you know, I wouldn't say dangerous, but just the worst of the worst is the, is the hostage situation. That's what we train for is, is the, you know, that's the worst case scenario is, is making an entry on a hostage situation. Sure. And so I, you hear this a lot, make entry. So is it like I see on TV where mm-hmm. you, you have a battering ram and then you've got <laughs> two people with two guys with shields and then everybody's lined up behind them and they tap the shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, a lot of it's a lot of it is like that, but it, it varies based. It's all circumstantial. So it, you know, I hate to say that, but it depends. It really does depend on <laughs> every situation is different given the layout, given the Intel, you know, mm. just given the situation, everything's different. And certainly, you know, the tactics are similar with, with a lot of teams, but some teams utilize shields, a lot we we do not we, as a team we didn't use shields that much um, we'd use them as barricades and things to hide behind but in entry side we don't because it limits your movement uh, and, mm. your visi- and your vision you know on an entry uh, so we didn't use them we trained them but didn't use them that really much in, in the in the real world a lot of teams use those exclusively a lot uh, so that varies a bit but yeah I mean and then the breaching is there's a whole you know a whole cadre of guys that just train breaching or specialist breachers because it can be such a infinite realm of how you get into things that uh, you need guys to really train up and, and, uh, and figure out how, to, you know, and that's when that's where as a, my supervisor, I don't need to know how they're going to get in. I just like you too, you two guys go figure out for how we're going to get through this door if we have to. And that's where I would send them off to, you know, to make that assessment. But we, you know, we've, we've, as most teams have kind of expanded the breaching to just not your battering ram, although we certainly still have those and use them. Uh, on a fairly basis. Now I use explosive explosive breaching a lot more because that kind of gives you a better standoff uh, of things, and that you know is a whole another side of it uh, that's gotten expansive is explosive breaching. But we everything to you know hooking a, a tow cable onto a you know a metal fence or a, or a you know a metal barred door or window, and it's, you know attached to a Bearcat, which is a big armored vehicle, and is backing up and ripping the gates off. So. Mm. Breaching is all kind of, then you get into, you know, like we did, because we have a lot of maritime stuff in Seattle. You know, we, we do, you know, maritime breaching stuff with the Coast Guard as far mm-hmm. as how you get through the, you know, the holes, you know, the, 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 uh, the metal doors on a ship, you know, that seals shut, those kinds of things. So, yeah. You, it, Interesting. Um, yeah. Let me just step back a little bit. So when you're called to a scene, like I imagine, so do you get the call from, a patrol sergeant might like, who calls you? <laughs> how, <laughs> you like, how do you, you know it. when to go? <laughs> you name it. You name it, man. It can come from you know, the dispatcher, the chief dispatcher. Mm. It can come from a patrol sergeant, a watch commander. It can come from a detective, you know, a detective in any unit. It can come from, it, come, it, it, it can and does come from, from all over. And, and sometimes it'll come to us, you know, supervisors. Sometimes the detective knows one of the SWAT operators and they'll call him and like, well, why aren't you? Your boss calling our boss. I'm like, I don't know. So it comes from it comes from all kinds of directions and stuff. But but it depends. You know, if it's a if it's a patrol event that's happening, you know, is is kind of unfolding and, and the dispatchers know, like, okay, SWAT should probably get started rolling on this too, then the chief dispatcher will call the SWAT commander and he'll then push out that information to get to get the team rolling on whatever's happening. 
and yeah, it, it comes, it kind of comes from all over. Well, I guess in some way you're not unlike firefighters in terms of how you respond. No, it totally, it's, it's totally like firefighters minus the pole. Yeah. <laughs> and the calendars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely don't the calendars. So you gear up, you suit up, I guess. I don't know what you call it. And then you get in the truck, right? And you're like, what's it like in the truck? You know, are you yeah. talking? Are you planning? Are you like Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, again, it, you know, I, I hate to say it, it depends. It depends <laughs> on what's happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, you know, a, a regular day for us would be, you know, we were kind of a Monday through Friday team. We have a day, you know, day squad or day squads and then one night squad. But most of we're all days. And so our days are starting like 7 a.m. Is, is when we start. And so the guys will roll in, you know, guys and gals. We would have females on the team now. Did you? So, well, yeah. 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 We have, in the, in the history, we had them in the past. I think they were hostage negotiators. But we actually have a female operator on the team That's now. That's great. Yeah, she's very good. She's ex- extremely good. Um, so the, the SWAT operators will come in. We have we have Tahoes. We're rolling in, in, in our Chevy Tahoes, and they're you know they got vault, mm. big vault vaults in the back, and so you know you'll load up with two or three people you know in a Tahoe, put their gear in there as far as their rifles and their heavy gear and their helmets and you know less lethal stuff. And if snipers are going out, and the sniper packs will go in there. So this whole back of the Tahoe is just full of gear, ready to go in case something does happen. Kind of standby for whatever we're doing for the day, training you know and part of it. Or, or the mission or prepping for a mission there you go we don't load up in the big trucks they're in the same garage and so if if you hear something that's happening that needs a bearcat or an armored vehicle or specialized equipment then you know that would be up to essentially me and, you know that might the commander would say you know this is what's happening you know you guys get out there and then i would be rolling through and i might grab one of my senior swat guys like hey, here's what i'm thinking and bounce it off of them or they might bounce it off of me of changing things and then we would say okay you two guys are playing this but it all depends on kind of what the situation is dictating or at least what the information is at first. But a lot of times, yeah, you just want to kind of get out there and get a handle on what it is and then adjust, you know, adjust as it, as it unfolds. And I just have to ask this because I watch a lot of police procedurals. But when you go in, they always show like on Blue Bloods, the detectives going in with SWAT. <laughs> the detectives. So, OK, thank you for laughing because they have no gear. Yeah, they're going yeah, with no, right? Totally, totally Hollywood. So, yeah, totally Hollywood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Danny, yeah, why would you? Why would you have the tactical team behind you? Why would you send the you know, the, the detective in with a badge around his neck and you know right. his handgun going in first? Yeah, right. It's total, totally Hollywood. Yeah, okay. No, no, detectives do not intermingle with 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 us. That would be bad. All right. <laughs> I my sister would will be very happy that I asked you that because oh, yeah. we watch this all the time. It's like, why are they going in? They have no protective gear. Yeah. Like they're right behind. Anyway, okay. Yeah, that's why I can't watch any of those any of those shows. Driving nuts. <laughs> okay. So, um, and then I do want to touch on active shooter because that probably evolved over the time you were there active shooter training when did that start uh for the police department i mean i think and they all started nationally after columbine i think everyone started right. doing more active shooter training and certainly it's evolved as you know as it, as it continues to uh to this day we do you know we do like a you know, rescue task force now where you're kind of 
you know, bringing firefighters in much quicker to get, you know, to get uh, medical care going faster. So it's certainly an evolving process. And it went from, you know, you're going to wait for, you know, four officers to get there and form your contact team of, of you know, this diamond, you're going to go in as four and deal with the shooter. Now it's kind of down to one or two. And, and if, you know, and that's where we trained in SWAT, if you're out there by yourself, you know, you're, you're grabbing your gun and going by yourself and you're, you know, what you learn very quick in these active shooter events is it's time, you know, time is of the essence. Time is the most critical thing of, you know, interdicting the shooter himself and then, you know, interdicting, you know, the medical side if someone actually was shot. So there's kind of two different clocks running. So time becomes the essence. So if, you know, SWAT was even responding in their Tahoes to an active shooter event, you know, they train that you're not, you know, getting in the back of your Tahoe and putting your vest on, putting your helmet on, getting all geared up. You're not doing that. You're literally pulling up, grabbing your rifle and, and going inside you know, because your, your job is to start putting rounds on the, on the, on the bad guy. Uh, so they stop shooting other people. So, so I have to ask, what do you think happened with Uvalde? I, you know, I wasn't there, so I don't know what happened. But it it it, it flabbergasted me to what they were thinking because I was under the assumption, as I think most officers were around the country, that you know you would never sit back and stand down the hallway and do that again. Like that would never happen. Like Columbine, you know. Virginia Tech, all those things kind of learned lessons with, with children dying that that was never going to happen again. So, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what happened, but I wasn't there in the hallway. I don't know what they were looking right. at. I don't know if the guy was barricaded. Right. I don't know that much to, to, to assess or money more quarterback enough, but. Well, and I don't want to throw them under the bus, you know, as, you, as, a, as I always say about law enforcement, when I see an incident on the news, it's like, I wasn't there. I don't know. So. Yeah. But I, um, I do believe, I do believe that no one, no one's beating up Uvalde, the police in that area, you know, harder than they're beating up themselves. I'm sure for the rest of their mm. lives as to what happened. Right. And, and right. so it's right. as much as everyone's throwing things at them, you know, they're the ones that have to live with it on a daily basis. And that would be far harder uh, uh, than anything right. else one could say to them. Yeah. Right. Right. The other aspect of the job is sniper. You know, you guys are trained snipers. And one thing I didn't realize is you explained to me is you can use a sniper just not just to shoot, but also for surveillance. Oh, I'd say ninety-nine percent of their job is is surveillance. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not every SWAT operator or officer is, is a sniper. You know, we, we had up to ten snipers at a time or ten certified people up on a rifle at a time to utilize, you know, any given mission. So it's definitely an extra job, so to speak. It's a lot of work and a lot more qualifications. It's more training you have to go to and stay up on. So it's another skill set, and some people really love it, and want to do it, and, and a lot of people are like no way they don't they don't want to have to do that. The the actual application is ninety nine plus percent of it is total observation, giving extra eyes on, giving you all kind of intel that, that could be useful uh, for the command post or from the field as to as to you know how things are unfolding or what what you know decisions can be made. I know every police officer. I, I have to believe that being on SWAT, you've you could tell a million stories. Uh, is there an incident or a story that sticks out in your memory? Oh, I was, I mean, a couple, you know, that's, that's the thing we, you, you know, as police officers know, it all blends together, you know, over the years and probably get older blends even more together. But yeah, there's, there's a couple, you know, one tragic story just cause it was, it was interesting for us. It was really interesting cause it was kind of one, one things that you had to deal with as it went, but it was, uh, it was actually a King County SWAT or King County detective case. And what had happened was, is kind of a, a very mental guy, a functional, functionally psychopath, 
Um, I had a family, wife and a wife and a, and a daughter. But he spent years, I mean, six, seven, eight years building a bunker out in the woods. And this is a small town, you know, probably 30, 40 miles away from Seattle called North Bend. And there was this mountain next to it uh, called Rattlesnake Ridge. And he spent years building a bunker out in this ridge line in the middle of nowhere, the side of this mountain, and filmed himself doing it, different stages of it and whatnot, filmed himself and all this. And then for whatever reason, I kind of watched this video of what he was doing, essentially filming himself. And he's like, well, I guess today, tomorrow is the day. And, and essentially he went home that day and, and killed his wife and killed his teenage daughter and killed their dog. And then set booby trapped IED bombs all around the house for first responders and lit the house on fire. Fire department gets there, sees the bombs, calls the fire bomb squad. They defuse the stuff. They put the house out, find the bodies inside. And then they're actually able to recover a little bit of stuff off of his, uh, his hard drive of his computer, some of these videos that he had, that he had taken and, and loaded his computer. He tried to burn everything up, but it, didn't, it wasn't successful. Based on all those videos and kind of some of the background stuff they could see at his bunker area, they were able to get the trajectory and get a general idea of where he might be. And so, you know, they sent King County SWAT out to figure out how they're going to find him and then what to do with him. And so they used us as a backup team uh, for that mission. And they spent, we spent, you know, we briefed this thing at, I don't know, two o'clock in the morning. And they spent better part of the day, you know, traversing up and down this mountainside, different kind of a grid search, trying to find this guy. And eventually he did find the bunker. He had a little camouflage and whatnot in there, but he actually had his little stove lit, so they saw a little smoke coming out. Found this guy in the bunker. They start doing stuff, you know, hailing him to come out trying to pry it open, throwing NFD flashbangs all around the place, uh, trying to launch gas into it, couldn't get it in there. This guy's heavily armed. You know, second video is all those rifles and guns he's got, so he's completely barricading this bunker with all kinds of weaponry and supplies. He could stay in there for a year if he had to. So anyway, that goes on for a better part of the day. They get exhausted, so they sent the first team of the SWAT, you know, our backup team up, so they hike in, like a two-mile hike in to get to this thing. They'd start doing the same thing, whatnot, and my, my team was like myself and nine other guys are just kind of hanging at the command post all day. Our first team gets exhausted, the backup team, and they send us in. So we go hiking into this thing and we try and do the same thing. And it gets to be about, I don't know, eight or nine o'clock at night. And that's when the commander calls me and says, oh, by the way, uh, we have no more backup teams for you guys. Can you guys hang out up there all night? Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was like, okay, sure. We can do that. Now, this is, again, on the side of the mountain in the middle of the woods. Uh, you don't know what, we don't know what kind of, you know, side tunnels this guy's got dug into this thing. So we're kind of in a 360, you know, sitting back to back with each other because nobody's going to pop out or whatnot. And it's about 45 degrees and raining. Oh. And so we're already soaked through and it's just miserable. But so we set up rotations as best we can to kind of keep pressure on this guy and we get some lights in to light it up. And then we, we sleep in like 30 minute shifts around the, around the clock. So it, just, it was just funny because of the camaraderie of it, you know, and I was trying to keep everybody motivated and be the tough sergeant, you know, and, and the guy still got some good, you know, years later had some good quotes of things that I said during <laughs> the course of the night for motivational reasons. You know, I still got a picture on my wall of me and some of the guys in the midst of all this. So it was, it was kind of an interesting experience being out there unplanned, unprepared, and miserable for an entire night. And finally we got airlifted out the next day when a fresh team came in and rescued or, or relieved us. Um, and got taken out after about 24 hours on station. And they finally get him? No, no. He, uh, they finally, the bomb squad spent half the night building a, a bomb big enough to breach the bunker. And they were able to breach it, 
like later the next day enough to get eyes in there and see if he can kill himself at some point. Oh, so, God. Yeah, oh, yeah. God. Oh. Yeah. I actually think I remember this. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Oof. And then, and then probably the best, I mean, one of the most, like you talk about the hostage rescue, it's a very subtle thing was your kind of your barricaded hostage situation where the guy had taken the ex girlfriend hostage Mm. kind of thing. It was an apartment in Seattle, but then for some reason, you know, he'd had her in there for a while. It wasn't doing anything to her, but it was definitely had her gunpoint was not letting her leave. And we'd set up on it, you know, worst case scenario, we had to breach the door and go in and and take care of things. But, you know, you're always trying to negotiate this stuff out and that really wasn't going anywhere. But for some reason, she still had her phone, I remember, and, and was able to communicate with the command post via text message. So we were able to communicate with her and I don't know who he thought, who he thought she was texting. But the sneaky thing was, is we were able to quietly, like really quietly remove a window from a bathroom and then tell her that she needed to convince him to let her go to the bathroom. And he did. And then we were able to sneak her out of a window, you know, extremely quietly and just solve the, solve the, hostage situation, you know, extremely successfully and, and extremely quietly and very subtle was really interesting because then the guy just became a barricaded, run the mill barricaded guy with a gun, no big deal. But it went from a very, dy- oh, like things can go bad really quickly to, yeah, oh, it's, it's no big deal. Yeah. So cool. then once he's barricaded, you have to do the whole waiting and negotiating. Well, yeah, then, sure. Then you can, you know, then you can deploy gas, you know, you can, you know, make things uncomfortable and drive him out. But I remember him surrendering shortly after his real. He had no hostage anymore that wow. his motivation escaped. Well, that is a good story. Yeah, so many. Good. We could do a that's whole good. episode on stories. <laughs> so those yeah. are some stories from SWAT. I know I do want to now cover the riots because that was a whole other kind of event. As I mentioned at the top, it's what inspired me to start this podcast. So tell me what it was like from your point of view and what kind of role SWAT played and how did it all unfold? You know, I think it was a kind of a shock to certainly to, to me and to a lot of people on the job that you've been doing the job a long time and that had already gone through the WTO riots back in 1999. World trade. Yep. Sorry. World trade organization, but very different in some regards than maybe not in size because WTO was huge. I think there was tens of thousands of people. Uh, but yeah, it was volatile in its, in its own time, in its own way, but definitely a different dynamic. You know, people recall in early 2020, you know, Seattle is actually over in Kirkland, kind of got hit first. It's almost like ground zero in the United States uh, for COVID. Things got locked down in Seattle uh, very, very early on, comparatively to the rest of the country, I think. You know, that's, that's spring 2020 and, you know, and the cops and the firefighters and the ambulance drivers and everyone else is still going to work. And we're all like, you know, everyone's heroes. Like, oh, thank you so much. You guys are still going to work. We really appreciate that. And then, you know, like May 25th, you know, George Floyd happens, you know, in Minneapolis, nothing to do with Seattle. But then I remember a few hundred protesters, like I want to say the 30th of May, you know, it was okay. It was, and that was starting to happen around the country too. You know, you get some protests, your typical Seattle stuff. And then on the 31st, you know, a few, maybe even a few hundred more just ramping up a little bit, still nothing major, a few things being thrown. But then I remember on June 1st, that's when things really changed and it was really bizarre. You know, we're coming in because there's supposed to be more protests and more intels coming out that could be bigger in downtown. And I don't remember how that whole day unfolded, but I remember at, at some point in the afternoon and evening, it starts pouring down rain in Seattle. It's nasty and cold and and not want to be out. And like, well, there's not going to be that many people out here. And there are going to be thousands and thousands, if not 10,000 people. Uh, out in downtown Seattle, and that's when things kind of went completely sideways. And 
you know, all the stores are being looted downtown and cars are burning. Police cars are being broken into and rifles being taken out of the police cars. The police cars are being set on fire. And just the general mentality of the crowd was completely, completely uh, changed, very much focused on trying to hurt police. That's what it really felt like. I mean, things were being thrown and, you know, cops being assaulted all over and then people assaulting other people and just the, the sheer anarchy of it and chaos uh, escalated pretty pretty dynamically on on June first, and then it kind of went down here from there for a while, as most people recall. It eventually ended up, you know, kind of consolidating up around the East Precinct, Capitol Hill area, uh, and then Chop formed and whatnot. Well, and to to drive a fine point on this, I mean, you know, to go from a few hundred and maybe a, a size that you're accustomed to with May Day to thousands possibly 10,000 people yeah in a few days just had to be shocking it was it was shocking it was shocking the mentality people that you're all heroes last week and this week you guys are the worst people on the, on the planet there's that side of it, but yeah but the sheer number like just blew blew you away and the, the the sergeant i interviewed for my first episode said what you said too is like one night we're heroes and the next day they're trying to kill us you know what do you do in that situation? I mean, what was SWAT's role? Yeah, SWAT, SWAT's role is like it always is a protest. You know, it's a support, just a support element. You know, they've got bike squads. You've got your hard squads of, of, of officers. You know, they pull regular patrol officers and even detectives out of their regular jobs and put them in mm-hmm. call hard squads. And that just puts them in some padding and they have their, their riot stick and maybe a, a helmet with a face shield on it. And so we're there for support roles. And we're at the, on those days we were loaded up you know, in our Tahoe's four deep. So I'd have a driver, you know, and three op- operators in the vehicle and the operators would deploy. You know, I had like my team would be just myself with in two Tahoe's and we would deploy, you know, behind whatever line that was forming or whatever movement bikes were making. We try and just keep up with them just to support them with our launchables and our hand thrown uh, based on what was kind of happening in front of us. And compared to like May Day, May Day was much smaller and it was sort of a predictable, to the extent a protest can be predictable, but they had a beginning, middle and an end. And you kind of sort of knew what to expect. This was an animal of its own and unending. Yeah, I would say, I would say May Day is, you know, a, a, a protest, right? More like, you know, it can turn violence, certainly break stuff and spray paint things and knock over things and you know, assault police officers. It happens, but it's more of a moving protest that you kind of manage and, and direct where it's going to some degree. This was computer, you know, just, there's a riot. There's like a riot all over downtown. So there's no, we're going to come up with a plan. We're going to, you know, have our resources or assets. We're going to put them at this location. We're going to come up with a plan to deal with things. It was, this was kind of sporadic and all over. So, and then it just turned so, uh, so violent so quickly, you know, with the burning of cars and the smashing windows and the chaos you know, I was just trying running to catch up. So certainly we were behind it. I remember being at an intersection and, you know, we had bikes and, and some hard squads and we just would take over the intersection. We, we'd form a circle and we were surrounded on all sides. I'm in the middle with my operators and the command staff and they're trying to decide what to do. And, and we're supporting, you know, patrol as we can or the, the line as much as we can, but it's, there was chaos all around you. And you're trying to get to places that are you know, being assaulted or buildings that are catching on fire or, you know, whatever that's coming across the radio, you're trying to respond to it. But it was, it was pretty chaotic. Yeah. And it went on for months. <laughs> Actually, I lost track of how long it went on for. It was, yeah, it went on for a long time. It, it ebbed and flowed, you know, after a while, you know, the, the whole downtown thing, 
only went on for a couple days. It just certainly didn't have the veracity and the size and scope that it had. That was for like on June 1st. Um, then it kind of all ended up on Capitol Hill there by the East precinct. And that got huge too. I like, I remember I got some pictures that have blocks of people just stacked up as deep as you can. And it became, you know, assault on the precinct. So you set up a, a perimeter around this mm-hmm. precinct and you got lines all over and there are protesters at every I mean, protesters, just people, you know, trying to probe and get in and assault police officers at every access point that we've got blocked off. So it was a pure, you know, you know, Alamo kind of feeling where you're, you're just hunkered in. What were some of the worst things you saw? Um, I mean, I saw, you know, I saw a lot of police officers getting hurt. I saw a lot of police officers being assaulted. Uh, and, you know, when I say assaulted, not just, you know, people think, oh, bottles or stuff. Thrown. Yeah, there's a lot of that. But I also saw, you know, if you're, remember those water balloon launchers are that takes like three people to launch it where two people will hold, you know, one side of it. it's like a giant rubber band. And then the third person will pull it back in between. It's a giant slingshot, essentially. And they use them, you know, at lakes and whatnot and, and launch water balloons, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet. Uh, well, they were launching chunks of concrete the size of your fist using one of those from like two blocks away into the police lines. So you've got huge chunks of concrete coming at mass speeds, you know, hitting, you know, even if you got your right home and on where else, like that impact was huge. And I saw, you know, some major injuries to officers going on. Um, you know, I got hit with some kind of AED that was made out of a candle because I always found the bits of it. They hit me in the leg and I still got the scar from it. It was bad. I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing some, uh, you know, major injuries for officers coming out for, for what, you know, again, why are we all out here doing this to begin with is happened in Minneapolis. It doesn't like that didn't happen in Seattle and I don't think would happen in Seattle. So why, you know, who knows, but just what was very different than WTO that I remember is, is the venom coming out of people's mouths. Like it was like pure hatred and just rage at the police. Um, and the stuff that, you know, that the officers in the front line, you know, I could, and SWAT could walk away or walk. You're behind the lines for the most part uh, when they're static. But the officers are just up there taking it right in their face. You know, the stuff that people are saying to them day in and day out, screaming at them. You know, this is all about Black Lives Matter, but I've got, you know, senior veteran black police officers standing up on a line, stoic as can be, while, you know, young white people are just screaming racist things in their face. So it's, it made, it was senseless as a lot of these riots, of course, are. But, so that was, it was a tough thing to watch and watch them having to take that, you know, uh, in, in the current day and age in mm-hmm. Seattle is supposed to be more inclusive and whatnot. So it was, it was tough to see that. And then, you know, the violence of it. And then, you know, as long as it went on, it just kept going and going and going. So did this contribute to your choosing to retire? I think it probably sped up my timeline by a few years. Yeah, I would say, I would say oh, me, me and, you know, and with probably a third of the police department because they've lost about a third of the police now have left. So, yeah, I think it, it certainly it was it certainly was not just the, uh, you know, the, the riots themselves or the, the protests themselves. But, the, you know, the response by the city government, right. you know, the calls for the defunding or just the piling on of what the protesters and, you know, and the media, what else are saying, the pile on by by the you know, about the city government certainly didn't help. And then like you alluded to, or you, you stated in the first of the podcast about, you know, Carmen Best, who was a, a chief that came in from within the department herself and being a, a minority uh, and a woman, you know, and she couldn't even get into the city council meetings. Your highest ranking law enforcement official in the city is not even asked her opinion or what they should do or, 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 you know, brought into meetings or consulted for any kind of, 
mayoral or city council decisions. They're just coming up with this on their own. So zero support essentially from city council really and from the mayor other than just, you know, bashing more on their own law enforcement that again had nothing to do with, with George Floyd. It must've just felt emotionally. I can't imagine how you all handled it physically was one demand, but emotionally I just can't imagine. Yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. I just tried to keep, you know, for me, I just tried to, you know, keep myself positive. I keep, you know, your supervisors, so you're keeping your people, trying to keep them positive and then rein, you know, reinforce my guys like, Hey, you're SWAT. You need to be out there keeping all those patrol guys that are standing on lines out there, you know, keep them positive. So the up, you know, keep upbeat, whatnot. And it got long as you're doing, you know, 16, 18 hour days every day. When the governor brought in the, the national guard, that was a big uplift because now he's all of a sudden you've got, you know, double your numbers overnight, uh, you know, backing you up. So that was a huge uplift. Yeah. It was a tough time, and Seattle made the news for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yep, completely, completely. Yeah. Well, let's talk about something happy. <laughs> you have a new gig. <laughs> I want to make sure that we talk about what you're doing now. Since retiring, you uh, have taken on a new role with a company called Creative Planning, and it's financial consulting I want to hear it from your point of view. I know that you have a story about how you were introduced to them. And then I want to hear about what you're doing for law enforcement through this job. Yeah, you bet. It's a financial planning company. I read about this company, you know, through, it's actually through a Tony Robbins book called Unshakable. And it's kind of an insight book into the financial industry as a whole, kind of opened my eyes to the industry itself. And then what's touted in the book is this other, this company, creative planning kind of how they're different and so got a hold of the financial planner there and he came to our house and did a whole workup on our finances kind of where we were you know in our in our lives and you know what we were looking at for retiring or wanted to have when we retired you know took all an account of all our investments 401ks you know or pension and everything else and kind of mapped it out for you until uh, me and my wife both turned 99 so they did this whole workup of a plan and analysis, you know, essentially for free. And then they, you know, tell you like, well, here's what we can do for you. And so we became clients. And that was probably, that's probably been like seven years ago now. And I've been very happy as clients. So two, probably two years ago, uh, they approached me like they're starting a referral program. And so what I've been doing that for the last two years is just more proactively going out and talking to fellow officers about what the company uh, can do for them. And essentially it's a, it's a true fiduciary company, meaning meaning the sense that they don't have any products to sell you. And, and any of your other big financial planning companies uh, has their own basket of products, and it's more cost-effective for them to steer you towards those products because they make money off of their fees, whereas creative planning has no products to sell you. So they are true fiduciaries, and they are looking out for your best interest. You know, I know they can contact you, and you could give them some information on what this company can offer. And I know officers have a pension to think about. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I'm certainly not a financial planner, so I don't tell people where to put their right. money, but right. that's what this, that's what this company does. They manage, you know, they manage your finances for you. They're a whole, they're like, they're like a holistic approach is what they call it. So it's not just your pension, let's say, or not just your 401k. It's kind of how those work in concert with each other. And then how that also works into maybe your spouse has a job, your spouse has a 401k. So they get it all working together. You can get a, essentially a objective look at your finances, at your investment, and it gives you a much better 
approach and trajectory for your own personal financing success by looking at that instead of just leaving it up to the state or the city or the pension board or whoever else is kind of controlling your money. And that's what we end up with when we retire from police departments is we get a pension, but you don't really ever look to see how much that's going to be. And is that going to be enough? And so that's what we found for us. I think that's one reason I was able, you know, was one reason I was able to retire early and get out at a shorter timeline because, you know, we had a professional company looking at this. So try and convey that to police officers and say, you know, there's no obligation to talk to this investment company. If you want to become a client, you know, great. But if you don't, you still get a nice, you know, look at your finances to where you are and where you could be going. So there's, there's no risk to do so. And it's been a successful uh, and, and fantastic company for us. So I just try and convey that to, to fellow officers. Police are skeptical of everything and everybody. <laughs> and, and certainly any kind right. of sales pitch, sales right. pitch coming from a you know, financial planner, I think, would come off that way. So hopefully I'm able to you know, impress upon folks that you know, this is a trustworthy company that has done great by us. So any police officer at any point in his or her career can contact you. doesn't have to be in the Pacific Northwest any, from around the country, right? Absolutely. And, there's, there's offices nationwide. Yeah, they got offices all over. So yeah, absolutely. And they can even just call you and say, hey, tell me more. Absolutely. I mean, find me, everybody can find me on LinkedIn, you know, Drew Hancock. Do you want to give your email? Sure. It's Drew.Hancock, H-A-N-C-O-C-K, at creativeplanningoneword.com. <laughs> I'll put that in the uh, episode notes. We've covered a lot today. I'm glad to know that you're still involved in helping law enforcement. I appreciate your career. In looking back, do you, do you feel that there were rewards to the job? Absolutely. I feel, I feel very blessed for the career path I'd chosen and, and had, uh, I had a great time. You know, I, I spent a vast, vast majority of my, my career looking forward to going to work every day. I had a great time. Got to do a lot of different things, things I never expected to do. And I certainly don't let the last, you know, year, uh, overshadow, you know, the 27 years before that. Worked with wonderful people, met wonderful people, and I think I couldn't have had a better experience. It was just a, a lot of fun, so so I appreciate it uh, very much. So it was hard to leave. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, thank you for your service, and thank you for being here and spending so much time with me today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on, and I appreciate uh, your efforts as well. Thank you very much. Okay. Good to see you. You too. <laughs>